turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through X. If they needed a big venue because they got a big mob, I can see this place packed. Now, you can't get the whole city in this theater, but you can get a good number of the people of the city in this theater. So I want you to imagine now a mob of tens of thousands of people. They've gotten all stirred up. This one guy, Demetrius, has gotten everybody fired up about Paul. But you know what? You know what is so... I mean, I shouldn't be laughing, but I mean, you know, when you look at here, they're all angry at Paul, but they don't drag him into the theater. Most of the time, when there's a mob that's formed, many of the people don't have a clue why it's happening in the first place. Unfortunately, a mob situation typically ends up causing some kind of violence or rioting. Does this sound familiar? The scenario playing out in today's teaching is not from the headlines of this current culture. No, Pastor Gary is speaking today about a different mob that occurred in Paul's time in the town of Ephesus. Hear about how it was handled then. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Acts with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. We find ourselves in chapter 19 here in Ephesus still. Ephesus is situated on the eastern shoreline of the Aegean Sea, population in the first century around 300 to 500,000 people. It was considered the third most populated city in the Roman Empire at this time. Today, only a small Turkish village named Aya Saluk remains where the ancient ruins of Ephesus once stood. It is located along a major trade route, so that's why it was a very popular and populated city. And it was most well-known for its worship of Artemis, who um, was the goddess of sex and fertility. Now, some of your Bibles refer to her as Artemis. The NIV uses the Greek name for her. If you have a King James Bible, it uses the Roman name for her, which was Diana. And as I mentioned last week, she is indeed Dirty Diana. Because uh, if you remember, uh, she's the goddess not only of the moon and the hunt, but also of sex and fertility. Nothing wrong with sex. That's the way God designed it, except when you use sex outside of God's design, which was limited to a marriage between a man and a woman. And in her case, there was uh, uh, sex became a form of worship, and it included a thousand temple prostitutes employed in the worship of Artemis or Diana at any given point. The temple of Artemis, as I said, considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, it wasn't discovered more recently until British archaeologist John Wood uh, found the site of the 
Temple of Diana, Temple of Artemis, December the 31st, 1869. So I wanted to remind us of all of this because this is the scene and the fact that Artemis was so worshipped, so revered, uh, so venerated here uh, leads us to this riot that is going to ensue because Paul is preaching something other than the goddess Artemis. He is preaching the god Jesus. And so that's going to be a conflict here in this uh, Greco-Roman culture. So we left off at verse 23. Let's pick it up there. Chapter 19 of Acts, verse 23 says, about that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. Remember, we talked about how the way was another name for Christianity mentioned six times in the book of Acts. So that becomes a label for Christianity. So a great disturbance about Christianity, about the way. And here's what happened. Verse 24, a silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, or Diana, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. Okay, so it's telling us that Demetrius, quite a successful silversmith, he would make these little idols, these little statues of of Diana, of Artemis. Archaeologists have discovered ancient little idols of Artemis. She is a multi-breasted idol, again, uh, kind of accentuating her her, uh, being the goddess of sex and fertility. And so he's making a living out of crafting these these idols of, of Artemis. And so verse 25, he called them together, the other craftsmen, along with the workmen in related trades and said, men, you know, we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. Please note that when someone doesn't like that you believe in Jesus and that you're leading other people to faith in Jesus, they're going to say you're leading people astray. So that's, that's his perception. Paul is actually liberating people, bringing people into the truth of the gospel. But in Demetrius's mind, Paul is leading people astray. And what's the greatest threat here? Money. He's making a good living off of these little idols of of Diana, and now all of a sudden Paul comes in here, preaches the good news of Christ, sets people free from the worship of these false gods, which is what they were doing. The, the, The Greeks and the Romans worshiped many gods. They were polytheistic culture. Now you start to worship the only true and living God. You have no more need for the little idols. And now Demetrius is going to go out of business. So he brings all the other business, you know, uh, shops, craftsmen, Workers, and he gives them this little speech. Continuing in the, in the middle now, verse uh, 26, he, he says about Paul that he says that man made gods are no gods at all. That's what Paul's preaching. He says in verse 27, there is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who was worshiped throughout the province of Asia, and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. So now, how much of this is he actually believing, and how much is he using this as leverage? We don't really know. Uh, But he is appealing to two things. The one I already mentioned, he's appealing to their livelihood. Money is at stake here, and people will do crazy things for money, all right? We all know this. So he's, he's like, He's like, money's at stake here. We're going to lose our business. If people start getting converted, they won't buy our little idols. The other issue, he says here, he appeals to their their national pride. He's like, he's like, we've got this huge temple here of Artemis. You know, this is, and if, and if he gets his way, if Paul gets his way and leads people to Christ, this other God, okay, it's going to be a discredit and a disgrace 
to our national pride. We have the temple of Artemis right here in Ephesus. You don't want to see this happen, do you? And so he's stirring up the crowd. Okay, they're getting really riled up here. So look at verse 28. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And soon... Note this, the whole city was in an uproar. How many did I tell you we're living in Ephesus at this time? Three hundred to 500,000 people. Now, is this literally the whole city? Or is it, you know, when we talk about how something took over a city and had a great influence, we say the, the whole city. I don't know that it's three to 500,000, every single person, but it's enough, probably multiple thousands, Because look what happens. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. So if they needed a big venue because they got a big mob, I can see this place packed. Now, you can't get the whole city in this theater, but you can get a good number of the people of the city in this theater. So I want you to imagine now a mob of tens of thousands of people. They've gotten all stirred up. This one guy, Demetrius, has gotten everybody fired up about Paul. But you know what? You know what is so? I mean, I shouldn't be laughing, but I mean, you know, when you look at here, they're all angry at Paul, but they don't drag him into the theater. They drag his friends. They seize, look again, verse 29, Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions. They pulled those guys into the theater. Can you see them being hauled into this mob like, hey, it's not us, it's Paul, you know? But anyway, they get pulled in there, and in verse 30, it says Paul wanted to appear before the crowd. He wanted to go in there and address, I mean, now look, let me finish the verse. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. So we don't know all the details here. Is it that in the chaos of the mob, they didn't really know where Paul was? And so they grabbed two of his traveling companions who were nearby. Or is it just in the chaos of things? Um, you know, Paul doesn't, doesn't get moved in there with them. We don't know all the details. What we do know is that Paul wants to go in. And, you know, he's a good friend. He doesn't want Gaius and Aristarchus to be, you know, hung out to dry. He'd rather go in there. He wants to address the crowd. But I I wonder personally, just when you look at the rest of Paul's ministry, if part of it was because he's thinking, yeah, I might die. But on the other hand, I got the potential to preach the gospel to 25,000 people in this theater. So I'm going to go on in there. We don't know. But the people who loved him were like, you don't want to go in there because you might die. The, the, the mob is that mad. So he, he doesn't end up going in there. Now look at verse 32. It says, the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. So it's like, People are getting accosted. People are yelling. They don't even know why they're there. Let's keep reading. Verse 33. And so the Jews pushed Alexander to the front. And some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. Now, let me explain. Who is this guy? Who's Alexander? Alexander is a Jew. The Jews push him in front of the crowd. And here's here's why. Because... Alexander represents the Jewish population that is living there in Ephesus. We know that there is one. And the Jews want this mob to know we're not a part of Paul's group. 
We're just leave us Jews alone. We, these are the ones who don't identify as Christians. These are just Jews who don't believe in Jesus as Messiah. They're wanting this angry mob to know, please don't kill us just because we're Jewish like Paul is, okay? We don't follow his way, all right? We're just respectful Jews who, who worship God. Now, it doesn't work, though, because verse the next verse, verse 34, but when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So in other words, it didn't matter to the Greeks that Alexander was saying, we don't really belong to Paul's group because what they were saying was we're Jewish. Well, that means you don't worship Artemis either. So why don't you just keep your mouth shut and go sit down? And then they start shouting for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You know, they're doing like the wave in the theater. It's like an incredible moment here. They're high-fiving each other. They're tweeting this out. Anyway, here they go. But now, verse 35, the city clerk quieted the crowd. So we got somebody here who, who has a little bit of reason. Quieted the crowd and said, men of Ephesus... Doesn't all the world know that this city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? And by the way, you, you can look historically, they, they have discovered a, a large meteor. Um, I guess it's meteorites, I suppose, when it finally hits. So, um, and they believe that that is what they were worshiping as the, as the gift from Artemis that dropped out of the sky. So anyway... Uh, verse, verse 36, therefore, the city clerk is talking still, therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. And after he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. So cooler heads prevail here. And the city clerk comes up and basically says, listen, you know, we don't have any really legitimate charges against these guys. If you want to bring charges, let's do it through the official channels. You all can press charges, take these guys to court. We'll put them in front of the proconsuls. We'll decide if they've broken any laws. And 25,000 people are like, that's nah, not worth it. And then they leave. They all go back to their homes. Well, chapter 20, when the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples These are the disciples of Ephesus. If you remember back in the beginning of chapter 19, when he first gets to Ephesus, he meets some uh, disciples who are are there. Uh, So he sends for them, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. So we're going now from Ephesus across the Aegean Sea to the upper region, the upper left of your screen there. That is uh, ancient Macedonia, the, the cities of Philippi and Neapolis and Thessalonica and Berea. He's going to go there. He's going to visit. And it says, uh, he set out for Macedonia. Verse 2, he traveled throughout that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed for three months. And so now he goes uh, south a little bit to Greece, uh, cities of Athens and Corinth, spends three months there. Who wouldn't want to? 
I mean, somebody's got to be on the mission field in Greece and the Greek islands are a wonderful place to share Christ. And so there he goes. And verse 4, it says that he was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus, from Berea, Aristarchus, and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we, circle the word we, because now it tells us that Luke, who is the author of Acts, has now joined him, because he's writing in the... Uh, in the pronoun we, but we sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread and five days later joined the others at Troas where we stayed seven days. So they go back across the Aegean Sea. They're now in, in Troas, which is Asia Minor, which today the map we're talking about Turkey. So this is, this is where now the following event is going to take place. And this is somewhat, um, um, I don't know, cute, I guess is the word I'll, I'll use here, but... Um, because it starts out tragic, but it ends up very nicely. So, um, but this is why I say it's cute. Look at verse 7. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Please note, by the way, first day of the week is, it's not Monday. Monday is the work week, right? First day of the week is Sunday. Sunday is the day that Christ rose from the dead. Please note that there's a pattern throughout Acts where they continue to meet on Sunday. Even though the Sabbath has not changed, that the Sabbath technically is still sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, I would just respectfully disagree with my Seventh-day Adventist friends who say that the Lord's Day is still on Saturday to worship because you see the pattern throughout the book of Acts, and here's one of them, where Sunday becomes the regular day of worship and celebration in ongoing commemoration of the resurrection of Christ. And so that's what they're doing. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. Friends, that's why I think this is... uh, This is a cute passage, because I feel inspired by Paul. (laughs) Now, now, how how do you feel about that, right? I mean, you know, I can joke about it, but can you imagine? We're going to be here till midnight, please. But they're they're just absorbing this. They are profoundly mature Christians right here, friends. (laughs) Like, we're going to have a Bible study till midnight? Bring it on, Paul. And so, verse 8, there were many lamps... In the upstairs room where we were meeting. Okay, got to get the picture here. It's not, it's not to create the ambiance, all right? This is first century. They don't have any light. So they got lamps, a lot of lamps going. But you have a lot of lamps going. You got a lot of heat generated, okay? So a lot of lamps burning here. Verse 9, seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. <laughs> Isn't this a cute story? This is a cute story here. Now, notice it says he fell into a deep sleep. The Greek word there for sleep is hypnos. It's where we get our English word hypnotic. He gets into this hypnotic state. Paul is just going on and on and on. And Eutychus, it says he's a young guy. So I'm picturing, you know, like he's 18 maybe. He's in the windowsill. And all the lamps are going. He's like, man, this is just kind of, when will Paul stop? Wow, you know, and he's just starting to, he's starting to nod off a little bit. I mean, it's, it's midnight, okay? Cut the guy some break. I mean, I've been preaching to you guys for many years now. I, I can tell you, I see people dozing off. You know, the beauty is, if you doze off and happen to fall out of your chair, you're only going to fall about three feet. Look at what happens to this kid. So, when he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story. He falls straight out of the window, and he dies. Now, this is the part where we shouldn't be laughing anymore, but there's a good outcome here. 
He falls out of the, out of the third story window because Paul's just droning on and on. You know, the Eutychus is sitting there going, okay, already, baptism, we get it. Can we move on? Well, he moves on. He moves on out the window, three stories down, and he gets picked up dead. Verse 10, Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Now, the guy has died because it tells us in the previous sentence that they picked him up dead. So this is not, oh, we got the wind knocked out of him. Okay, he fell three stories, friends, all right? He didn't get the wind knocked out of him. He died here. This is a miracle. So don't overlook the miracle thinking, oh, you know, Paul just gave him a little CPR, a little mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, everything worked out, just had the wind knocked out of him. No, the guy died. But what Paul is doing here is very similar to what we read in the Old Testament concerning Elijah the prophet and Elisha the prophet. They both had similar miraculous events. In 1 Kings 17, Elijah uh, put his body over top of the widow's son who had died and prayed for this boy to come back to life, and that's exactly what happened, and God brought about a great miracle. Similar thing happened in 2 Kings chapter 4 with Elijah's understudy, Elisha, with the Shunammite's son. Same thing. Stretched out over top, body to body, and there was this honoring of God to pass the virtue of one life to another to raise these young men from the dead. Happens in 1 Kings 17, happens in 2 Kings 4, happens right here in Acts chapter 20. So this is a miracle, and don't overlook it thinking, you know, well, this is just a, a guy who got the wind knocked out of him. No, he puts his arms around him, threw himself on the young man. I'm sure he probably, you know, it doesn't say this, but if we know 1 Kings 17, 2 Kings chapter 4, and you know that Paul was schooled in the scriptures, you know that he's thinking, okay, this is what Elijah did, this is what Elijah did. I'm going to follow the model of how God honored miracles in the Old Testament. And so that's what he does, and God, God brought this, uh, this young man back to life. Verse 11. This is cute, too, because it says, then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. We're hungry. <laughs> you know, it's been a good church service where it's still midnight. We just raised somebody from the dead. How about let's order a pizza? So, so they, they have a good meal. And after talking until daylight, friends, he went back on to preaching. After talking until daylight, then he left. And I wonder if the people were sad. I'm sure they were sad. <laughs> Phew, till, till daylight. And the people took the young man home alive. Another indication that he was, in fact, dead. Took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Well, again, you know, the reason why this was an all-night uh, meeting, an all-night uh, prayer and Bible study service, was because he's, he's getting ready to leave Ephesus, and he wants to say goodbye. And uh, this is going to be a tearful departure here. And so it says here in verse 13 that when we went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard, he had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. And when he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. And the next day we set sail from there and arrived at Chios. 
And the day after that, we crossed over to Samos and on the following day arrived at Miletus. Okay, that's the key place. This is Miletus. It's about 50 miles south of Ephesus. So all those other uh, little uh, cities we just read are scattered throughout various islands there in the Aegean Sea. He's, he's backpedaling. He basically backpedals until he gets to Miletus and then he's going to take a ship uh, on towards Jerusalem. We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary's been going through the book of Acts. If you missed any part of this message, you can hear it again on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. You might want to download our mobile app so you have these teachings with you on the go. That way, you'll never miss a message from Pastor Gary's studies, and you'll always have encouragement from God's Word at your fingertips. Find a link to download the app for your iPhone or Android device at our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. Simply look under the Teachings tab. While you're there, feel free to take some time to learn about the church this radio ministry originates from, Cornerstone Chapel. We'd be happy to meet you. You'll find all you need to know about service times and other info on our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. We hope and pray you've been blessed by today's teaching in the book of Acts. Keep reading on your own in this book and discover so many inspiring and motivating things. Pastor Gary will continue teaching about the amazing acts done by God and His Spirit on our next edition of Cornerstone Connection.